Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. So, the fourth wave of COVID and the Delta variant, we're hearing it's rocketing through Canada, and there are concerns, and we're seeing some of the statistics, there are concerns about our health care system. Will our national health care system be able to absorb and provide the necessary care. And as I mentioned in the last hour, inevitably the question is raised about increasing the quotient of private health care in this country. It always comes up in an election. It becomes an aggression um, question, and it's used politically when it really shouldn't be because there's a pragmatic aspect to this. It's very simple. If you own a private medical organization and you want to build a facility in this country, whether it's a clinic or a hospital, and you build it with your own money, and you operate it with your own money, not with government subsidy, but you operate it with your own money, and you accept Canadian patients, as the public system does, with the patients arriving with their provincial health care card, they present the health care card, they don't get billed a penny because the private entity has to either survive or fail based on the model that exists. So they would get paid by the province. You would not pay more to go to a private entity, nor would I, or a public entity. We would be able to choose. And if they can make a profit, and if they can be successful, and if they can provide excellent service, I don't think anybody loses. I know I'll get emails saying, you're trying to destroy public health care. No, I'm not. There are up to 5 million people in this country who do not have a family doctor. So the healthcare system at its very first chain link starts to come apart because they don't have access to a family physician. They have to go to clinics. They have to go to emergency rooms because they don't have a family doctor. So two years ago, we had the uh, president of the Canadian Medical Association on this program who himself was a family doctor, still is a family doctor, but he was the president at the time, and he said he didn't have a family doctor, the president of the CMA. There's a lot to talk about. And to do that, uh, we're glad to have Dr. Sean Watley with us, past president of the Ontario Medical Association, senior fellow at the MacDonald Laurier Institute. He's the author of When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing. It's a great book. Excellent read. Dr. Watley, good to have you back. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, sir, and thank you for that intro. Wow, you you've set up the whole the whole spectrum so beautifully. We should just end the show right there. <laughs> Do you know what I? I used to make this point, argue this point on the air twenty twenty five years ago, and I was told that I was a heretic, that I was a destroyer of public health care. You you name it, I was called it, and it just never made any sense to me. If it doesn't cost you any more, and if there's additional health care, and it's funded and and paid for by the provincial system that's in place, who loses? Yeah, no, well, well said, and and certainly, the the tricky thing in all of this is is part of what you're describing came out of the 1970s, and that's how the system was set up, right? Uh, private practice, public payment, and so for the first five years, so Medicare was. Um, passed in 1966, was rolled out across the country between 68 and 72. So between 1972 and 1977, basically doctors provided care, hospitals did what they do, and government paid the bill and 
end of story. They didn't ask any questions. Everything changed in the late 1970s. So 1977, the first uh, Trudeau government passed the Established Programs Financing Act and basically ended the blank checks. So up to that point, there was a 50% guarantee, which they often didn't pay the 50%, but they promised to pay 50%, at least that was in theory, of whatever the provinces decided to spend. Well, once the blank checks ended in 1977, it went to more of a block uh, funding from the federal government to the provincial governments. Um, all of a sudden, the provinces were on the hook and they said, whoa, 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 we're, we're spending all this money for all this care. OK, now we're well, we're going to have to close hospitals or we're going to have to limit the number of doctors and the number of nurses. And so a whole bunch of managerialism creeped in very, very quickly. So although we still, yes, I own my clinic. I'm also burdened with so many regulations that a lot of people are saying, you know what, please take my clinic, put me on salary. You do the hiring and firing and dealing yeah. with insurance policies. So, so private, it, it's a slippery word, but your point is very well taken. Um, why are we panicked about something that's here? Yeah. And, and it is in, in a number of provinces. And my experience was in Quebec for nine years between 2007 and 2016. And there were actually medical clinics private doctor's offices, but there would be two or three doctors who were in this facility, and they would ask you to pay for a membership. So, and the sign, you know, not just a little handwritten sign, an actual sign was properly professionally prepared, and it asked you to become a member. And to become a member, you had to pay a fee. And if you paid the fee and became a member of that particular medical facility, you were treated more quickly, you got service more quickly, received service more quickly than if you chose not to be a member. They didn't, they didn't disqualify you if you chose not to be a member, but they were up front. You will not get treated as quickly. And, that, and yeah. that's, that's just, the, I mean, that's, a, that's what exists in Quebec. Yeah. I don't know if it does anywhere else, but anyway. Every, every other industry does it, right? If you want advanced booking for your, uh, your airline flights or, or whatnot. Um, and, and certainly there are block payments allowed in Ontario as well. I, I usually frame it this way because I guess whenever we talk about healthcare, we immediately start talking about payment, right? And so people say oh, private, always. oh my gosh, sorry, go ahead. No, always, you're right. It immediately goes to payment. Yeah, so we talk about money and and uh, I was uh, on the show, on the air with um, with someone and they said, you know, everybody says it's not about the money, but it really is about the money, isn't it? It's and, always and so, about the money. It's always yeah, it's about a, the money. Yeah, it's always about the money. But I always tell this anecdote. So if I go to get milk, my wife says, Sean, get some milk on the way home. And I'm driving my daughter home from school. And so we stop at Metro and I say, run in, get two bags of milk. Here's my visa um, and, uh, and, and come running back out. So I have decided the location of the milk purchase, the kind of milk, we want 1%, not 2%. The amount of milk, we want two bags, not one bag. The timing, anyways, you get the idea. I've controlled everything about that whole event. And if I give my daughter the visa, let's say the visa is declined. So she has to use her own cash and she comes back out and says, dad, I use your own cash. Or if she uses uh, food stamps, it doesn't matter what the payment is. What matters more is who get to who got to make all those other decisions. And so, yes, let's have a discussion about payment. But I think it's a distraction because the real issue is who gets to call all the shots about everything else. And that's what I'm passionate about, especially. Yeah. Well, it worries me. And I have three questions for you, and I'm going to ask you when we come back from the break. But uh, what really concerned me and still concerns me is when politics is in charge of anything, it generally doesn't run all that well. 
And it seems to me, and it has for years, that healthcare in this country has been a political football. It's been used as a an election issue of opportunity by by re- repeatedly by political parties. And the only people who suffer, well, I shouldn't say the only people who suffer, but the patients suffer, and so do the doctors, and so do the healthcare professionals. Yeah, the only yeah. people who the only people benefit are the politicians. In my well, view, some people think uh, Medicare exists to provide care for patients. And uh, a leading economist in Canada calls that the naive clinical view, you know, that you're actually going to get the care you need when you show up needing care. And and they say, no, 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 no. The medical system actually exists for something bigger than that. It's to form a nation and to develop standards and to transfer payments from one province to the other. So all these political objectives are the main reason we have Medicare. It's not to get care for patients. That's so naive of you. Yeah. Not me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, Dr. Watley, with the fourth wave of COVID, and again, the concerns expressed that our healthcare system may not be able to keep up with the worst case scenario that modelers seem to come up with. Uh, so, we, we repeatedly hear of how hospitals and the healthcare system are very close, critically close, to being overloaded. As well, we repeatedly at various times over the past 16 months have heard that ICUs were at max capacity or in some cases, over max capacity numbers. Is this entirely or partly caused by what you write about in what politics and when politics comes before patients? Oh, absolutely. I would say it's entirely caused by it. So um, I'm understanding your question to be not about COVID per se. So we're not going to have a discussion about Delta variants and admission rates no, and stuff like no, that. No, just the, the results of COVID or, or another issue or, or crisis. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, it wouldn't have to be COVID. You could pick any virus uh, every every year when we have the flu season. Oh, my gosh, we're overcrowded. We're talking about canceling surgery. So I used to sit at Medical Advisory Committee, which is kind of the governing body for on the medical side of things in the, in the hospital. All the chiefs would sit there every year. We'd be saying, oh, no, our volumes are up. Internal medicine is swamped. We have hallway medicine. The town of Brampton, right before COVID hit, declared a state of emergency for hospital overcrowding. You know, the first 10, 15 years of my career, I I spent it uh, mostly in emergency medicine. I don't do that anymore. But I would say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the wait. I'm sorry. You know what? It's a really busy day. Oh, it's Monday. Didn't you know Mondays are busy? Oh, someone's sick. You know, we're short staffed. And then I got into uh, administration and I realized, wait a second. We shouldn't be saying sorry. We should be saying Sorry, I planned it this way. Sorry, we designed the system to make you wait. I, I got to read you one quote. This is Dr. Charles Wright, a, a senior administrator from BC. Uh, quote, administrators maintain waiting lists on purpose, the way airlines overbook. As for urgent patients on the list who are in pain, the public system will decide when their pain requires care. These are societal decisions. The individual is not able to decide rationally. Deputy Minister of Health in Ontario said, we closed hospitals with abandon in the 1990s and we really had no idea about the impact of it. So all of this lack of capacity, the fact that Ontario has 1.5 acute care hospital beds versus the European average, the OECD average of 4.7, Canada has 2.5, so Canada is doing better than Ontario. But the fact that these numbers exist the way they do, we say, oh, we're wringing our hands and we say, oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Well, people have been doing for many decades. They created what we have now. And I think it's time to start putting accountability where it belongs on the people who are managing this thing. Yeah. 
Uh, when, when I talk to doctors, not all of them, but some doctors, make this whole issue sound really, really, really complex, uh, very challenging. And so the question becomes, is medicine not more like, you know, fixing the engine of your car than painting the, the Sistine Chapel? Um, why shouldn't governments just manage health care? Now, here we go back to the earlier model that I talked about. Like CEOs manage factories and have for hundreds of years. Um, are doctors just being difficult? Well, sometimes we are. <laughs> sometimes, whenever there's an opportunity to, to be difficult, we take it for sure. Um, at least it feels that way sometimes. But th this is the issue, and, and I'm going to geek out on you for a little bit. So um, there are different kinds of organizations. Some organizations are like the post office. You can see the work people are doing, the letters come in, and you can see them sorted, and they can see the letters go out. And so a manager can manage that. A CEO can go in and say, okay, letters in, letters processed, letters out. Um, we call it a production organization. There are also procedural organizations. And you can think of the military in peacetime, right? You can see what they're doing. You can see their training and how well they handle their weapons. But you have no idea how they're going to do in a war. A third type of organization is a craft organization or a craft industry. And you think of your labor relations or your negotiators, right? You have no idea what's going on behind those closed doors, but you can see the contract that they produce. So the work is invisible. The output is obvious. Then finally, you get a coping organization. And this is where medicine falls. So you, an example would be education or peacekeeping. Well, how can we measure how much peace has been kept, right? Okay, Mr. Peace Officer, you're doing a good job. Let's measure the amount of peace. Well, peace is a metaphysical concept. Or, or for education, how can you measure how much has actually been taught? Did the teacher teach the kid or did the parents teach the kid? Or maybe the kid in the seat beside the kid taught the kid. So, And furthermore, did the teaching actually even achieve anything? Did the child go on to be wealthy, healthy, and wise because of that education? So... Coping organizations, medicine falls into it for the most part. If I tell you to stop smoking, you may or may not stop. It may or may not help you. And you may or may not live longer. Now, the data shows that smoking's bad. And on average, you, you know, people who stop live longer and they don't get cancer. So I'm not saying you, you shouldn't stop smoking. But my point is to try to manage that. How do you measure that situation? And so what happens for managers who find themselves put over or in responsibility of a coping organization, they change the coping organization into a procedural organization. Okay. So what they do is they say, okay, we'll make a bunch of checklists for the teachers. Right. Did the teacher introduce the lesson? Check. Did they have PowerPoint? Check. Did they do this? And, and they try to transform these organizations. And this is a central problem okay. with central management of a coping organization. And no one's figured out how to solve it yet. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.